Good morning again. You know, I, 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 I was moved this morning because of you guys, so I just wanted to thank you. I, I just felt the Lord in our worship, you know. And one of the things, when we planted this church seven years ago, we planted it with a couple of staples as the vision. And one of the main staples that um, we, we want to maintain and the culture we want to create to some degree um, is a church that sings to Jesus. Now, now, there's a difference of just singing, right? Because worship comes from our hearts. And, and the reason why we do music in our services, number one, is because the Bible tells us to, that it's prescribed as a form of worship in the Bible to use, to use music. In Psalm 150, it says, use stringed instruments and percussion instruments. And it tells you exactly how cymbals and loud cymbals and clashing cymbals. But, you know, there's one thing, because music can become a performance. And our, and our musicians, they're... Um, they're very meticulous about doing the music the right way and with the stuff that I miss, and they do such a phenomenal job. I have other worship leaders and people come in, and they tell me how technically sound our worship team is. Now, I wouldn't know one way or another. You know, they could break a string and twang through the song, and I'd just be like, Jesus. You know, <laughs> you know I, don't, I don't hear it. I'm just into the worship. But, you know, but again, where it's not a performance. If the music is good, but that it's, it's done in a way that, that, amen, praise God, that we, we're connecting to Jesus. That's the whole point. Like, what are we doing? Like, if we're not individually connecting to Jesus. And so it, it's awesome. That, and it, that starts with you guys, that you use that time. You use that opportunity to connect to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Hey, uh, it's this time of the year. So it's January. Every January, I put this out to you guys. We had a whole case of these. These are 20 bucks a piece donated very graciously. I gave every one of them away already on Christmas Eve. So I don't know how many was in the case, 24, 30, something like that. But um, so 30 of you got one of these. Um, but I, I told you, you can only have it if you read it every day. But this is called a one-year Bible. It's not, it's not like your regular Bible where you have the Old and the New Testament. It's broke up into 365 different reading assignments. So it says January 1st, and you have your reading assignment. January 2nd, all the way through the year. It takes about 15 minutes a day. And if you'll spend 15 minutes a day reading this, you will have read the entire Bible in one year. You know, most of us, you know, or maybe we, we encourage you as a church to read. I don't know how well we do on that. One of our pastors, Calvary pastors, at the last pastor's conference, he said, you'd be surprised he said, do a poll in your church, make it anonymous, try to get people to be honest, and ask people in your church how often they actually read their Bibles. And I don't know how well we would do. I hope we would do better than some churches, maybe not as good as others, but it's definitely something that we preach here. It's definitely something uh, that we talk about all the time and encourage you guys as Christ followers, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to become more like Jesus, if you want to know Jesus, you have to be people of the word. You know, and you have to know how to read the Bible for yourself um, and, and just practicing and reading and that God can speak to you. One of the things that you have responsibility for, okay, everybody put up your, your, your individual mirrors and look at them real quick for me. Okay, you see that person in that mirror? That is who is responsible to make sure that you don't be deceived. It's not my responsibility. It is your responsibility to be not deceived, okay? So if somebody's hurt you, if somebody's deceived you, you know, if, I, if I'm teaching deception or heresy, you should be able to say, hey, that's not what it says in the Bible. Or that's, hey, what about this? Or we could talk about it. I don't mind ever being challenged on anything that we could talk about something. If it's in the spirit of not just arguing but growing, I, I'm open. I'm available all week. Call me. Talk to me. Let's work it out. Let's fix it if it's wrong. 
But, but, it, but um, being a people of the word is so important. And there's a simple, simple, simple way for you to be people of the word. This little thing right here. 20 bucks on Amazon. If you get out your phone right now and you order it, by the time you get home from church today, it'll be on your porch. <laughs> it's called the one-year Bible. Um, one-year Bible in chronological order, or just one-year Bible is all you're looking for. Um, this one happens to be a New King James Version. I like the New King James Version. I don't think it's the best or only version. Um, the English Standard Version, or ESV, is a great, easy-read Bible. Um, NIV is a good, easy-read Bible. Doctrinally, I got some things with the NIV. It's not my favorite, but if that's the one you like, go for it. The King James, if you're still into the these and the thous and the though thou fours and charity instead of love and four score and 20 instead of 80, go for it. Um, the New King James just takes some of that stuff out and makes it a little, little modern language. Um, the American Standard is a great version. Um, we use the New King James here. That's what I read from, so that's why I recommend. So if you bring your Bible to church, you're, you're reading word for word from what I'm reading out of. Um, so anyways, one-year Bible challenge, daily challenge. Read your Bible and pray every day. Say it with me. Read your Bible and pray every day. One more time. Read your Bible and pray every day. Hey, so important. It'll change your life. Honestly, you know, and I'm going to keep going. I should stop now, but um, I, I say, and I mean this with all my heart. I spent 15 years um, as an assistant pastor with, with a wonderful mentor and pastor and, and leader and friend. And the, you know, and he taught me many things. All, all I do now in ministry is I copy what I learned from him. That's all I do. Um, and, and, but, you know, if really, if I could be honest and I could say, what is the most important thing that he taught me in 15 years? The most valuable thing that I took away from 15 years of, 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 from my pastor. And honestly, truthfully, it's read your Bible and pray every day. He instilled that in us. He taught that to us. He encouraged us. Um, because you listen, you don't need me. I, I, you, the function of the local church and the local body is, is fellowship, it's friendship, it's growing, it's equipping. And I'm, and I'm called to be a pastor teacher. So, so I teach and I equip and I, and I refine and I help us grow. But you still have responsibility on your own to, to spend during the week. And, you know, I get you an hour, maybe two on a week if you come on Wednesdays. Um, and just being and, and fast forwarding your personal growth in the Lord and, and so valuable and something prof- so profound and yet as simple as just read your Bible and pray every day. Fifteen minutes a day will change your life. Amen? We can all go home. Like, if you guys do that, I'm just kidding. Don't leave. Because I'm going to preach for the next hour. No, I'm not going to do it to you. We're going we're gonna to get out of here when we get out of here. If you have your... Oh, wait, wait, wait. One more thing. I said I was going to mention this. Um, January 15th, we're going to a new format on Wednesday nights. Um, so Pat might have mentioned some of this stuff. I just want to reinforce it a little bit. Um, we're going to go to a men's and a women's Bible study on Wednesday nights. We're still going to meet corporately. We call it family night because we invite newborn to, to adult to come. Um, the children have classes and where they're taught age appropriate. Newborn through sixth grade is in the children's ministry. Seventh through 12th, they have their class in the youth room. And then the adults will all meet in here for worship with um, the junior high, high school and, and adults. And then after worship, we'll break up into two small groups, men and women. We're going to do women's study and men's study on the same night. And then starting January 16th, um, we're going to do home fellowship starting in our house. It's four couples. So I apologize if you're a single and you get left out on that. You're not left out. Come on Wednesdays. That's for you. But this is for specifically and only for married couples. So if you want to be a part of that, um, the vision is that we want to start some home groups in our church. We're going to talk about in the sermon a little bit today, but we want to start promoting as the church grows. We want to 
get you guys to meet other people in our church and make friends and uh, make life groups and home groups and family groups and people in your neighborhoods that, that, that know and love Jesus. And so um, we're going to start in our house. We're going to try to model that um, um, on uh, Thursday nights, twice a month on Thursday nights. We're going to use the children's ministry for child care. We've hired some staff to watch your kids. So you'll come. You can drop your kids off here, head to the house. We'll be at the house for about an hour and a half, hour and 45. Then you come back and get the kids and head home. We'll, we'll do like finger foods. We'll study the Bible. We'll fellowship together. And depending on how it goes, then we're hoping to make some smaller um, break off and identify some leaders, some folks that want to lead. Two, two ways to lead. One is you maybe you're not a teacher and you don't want to teach the Bible, but you're willing to, to use your home. And that takes a great um, pressure off the person who's teaching and stuff. You know, if you have to teach, prepare your message, prepare your study and get the house, have the house clean, you know, on those Thursdays, it's a lot of work. Maybe you say, I'll, I'll prepare the house and someone else comes in and teaches. So those two opportunities, you could host with your house or you could teach. Some folks may do both. We'll try to identify maybe one in Grantsville and Stockton and Stansbury and Tooele and that way something close to your house. And uh, that's, that's the vision moving forward. We'll see what happens. Amen. So pray for that. And then as you guys know, pray for our nation, pray for our president. Um, Jack Hibbs, who's a Calvary Chapel pastor, has just been invited. There's, they do a lot of this, but he did. A, he put together a faith-based initiative of of, of evangelical pastors and leaders to, um, you know, get, give him some advice and be able to speak into the, the life and the and this presidency. And one of the the main issues they they met this week um, was was on the pro-life that, that Trump says that moving forward and, and in 2020 he said will be one of the most pro-life um, um, pushes in his, in his, in, in, that we've seen ever. And so be praying for that. Be praying for our, our, our nation. As you guys know, we're in a little bit of a skirmish with Iran right now, which is right out of the pages of the Bible. It's happening now. If you're not familiar, read Ezekiel 37, 38. Um, Ezekiel 37 fulfilled in 1948 before our eyes. Ezekiel 38 is up and coming. It speaks of a war called the Gog and Magog invasion. What's interesting about the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 is that there's 10 nations that are mentioned and three of the primary nations that are mentioned in the Gog and Magog invasion from Ezekiel 38 is Iran, Syria, and Russia. Now, 100 years ago, if you said Iran and Russia and Syria are going to get together, um, it would have never happened. It wouldn't even, nobody would have ever believed it. And then the other nations that are all a part of it, not only the 10 that are mentioned, but interestingly enough, those that are not mentioned, Saudi Arabia is not mentioned and Egypt is not mentioned. Since 1948, every skirmish that Israel has ever been in has been from Egypt and um, specifically and um, Saudi Arabia is involved somehow. And these two conspicuously are, are not listed in Ezekiel 38. And interestingly enough, both both Egypt and Saudi Arabia right now have peace treaties with an interest to be on the side of Israel. So it's just, it's fascinating. So check it out. It's happening before our eyes. Keep that stuff in prayer. Keep our, our leadership, our cabinet, our, our military in prayer as far as making decisions. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is something we should talk about in public or in private, but I don't have any coups, so we're just going to do it anyways. But this guy, we just killed this Soleimani. He was a dirtbag. <laughs> this guy, this guy was evil, man. He, he was actually on the terror watch list for the last Obama and Bush both had him on a on a terrorist watch list. He's responsible for wars and deaths and he, he's a bad guy. And and Bush passed on him and Obama passed on him and, and President Trump had an opportunity and took him out. And so this this wasn't a 
This isn't like, oh, poor guy. This guy was an enemy. He was a dirtbag. He was a bad guy, and he killed a lot of people. And so I think God, God's justice was involved. All right. <laughs> done. I'm done. Sorry. For you that are new, welcome. We love you here. <laughs> hey, open your Bibles. That's what we really do here. Open your Bibles. We're going to be in, the, in Acts chapter 2 today, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago. We're just going to march right through the book of Acts. Again, if you're new, our style is that we teach a chapter of the Bible or about a chapter of the Bible each week. So we'll be in Acts chapter 2 today, Acts chapter 3 to, uh, next Sunday, Acts chapter 4 the following Sunday. We'll march right through the book of Acts. We'll finish every book in the New Testament. And when we finish it, we'll start over and systematically we'll go through the Word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I don't have any glasses, dude. I could barely read the communion thing. I think they're in here. Excuse me. Oh, praise God. All right, I can read now. I can see. Okay, we left off last week in verse number 13. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 12. It says, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Now, in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the fourth of seven Jewish feasts or holy days or holidays. You guys might be familiar. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. The same um, seven holidays that are still celebrated today. But these seven major feasts are a prophetic model. And on the exact day of each of the seven feasts, prophetically, God fulfilled a, a prophetic model. The first three, the first four, actually, um, Passover, Jesus died on the cross. Unleavened bread, he was buried. First fruits, he rose again. And on Pentecost, the, the birth of the church. Now, Pentecost was celebrated and to this day celebrated in Israel as a, as a holiday to celebrate the birth of the nation. The nation, they, they, they point the birth of the nation to Exodus 20 when Moses came down off the um, mountain and gave them the law, that they marked that as the official birth of the nation where they became a nation. And so Pentecost is the, the giving of the law, birth of the nation. And on this day, Jesus tells the disciples after he dies on the cross and he rises again, he, he appears to the disciples, he appears to over 500 at one time, and he tells them to go to Jerusalem and tarry ye there or wait there until I give you or until I send the Holy Spirit. So the apostles do that. They go to the upper room, this place called a different upper room than where the Last Supper was kept. And, they, and it says that they're together in one accord, praying and, and waiting. And on the day of Pentecost, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, that God poured his spirit out upon the church for the first time in human history. This new move, this new testament thing where, where God is going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And the 120 that had gathered in the room, they began to speak with other tongues. Now in 1 Corinthians, we studied last week, it talks about this gift of the Holy Spirit of speaking in tongues. That's not what happens in Acts chapter 2 in the first half. When they spoke in tongues, the Bible talks about tongues of men and of angels. The tongues, the gift of tongues and the, and the gifts of the Spirit is, is unintelligible for the most part. And, and nobody knows. Paul says when you speak in tongues, you speak without understanding. But in this particular outpouring of the Spirit, when they spoke in tongues, other people were traveling from different countries and they understood what they were saying in their own language. And they were praising God articulately and specifically in all these different languages that they didn't speak. So they were given this supernatural gift that day to speak a different language that would praise God. And the people were like freaking out, what's going on? And as the Holy Spirit fell upon them, it says that they, they said, what is going on? In verse 13, it says, others mocked 
and, and said they are full of new wine. You know, the mockers are always there. There's a Rick in every crowd, right? <laughs> Love you, brother. Just kidding. And so they, the, then Peter, verse 14, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is the third hour of the day. So Peter stood up and he said, these guys aren't drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's funny what his defense was. I'm like, Peter didn't know some of my friends. Nine o'clock in the morning didn't stop him. He said, the bars aren't even opened yet. They're not drunk. And then listen, verse 16. It says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I like how it reads in the original King James. It says, this is that. Okay, I want you guys to repeat after me. This is that. One more time. This is that. That is so important to you as a Christian, as a Christ follower, to us as a church. When somebody says to us, why do you not baptize babies? The church we came from baptized babies. We can say, this is that, which is in the Bible. Why do you raise your hands when you worship? Well, because in Psalm 28, it says to raise our hands to the Lord in worship. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, I, I desire that men everywhere raise hands, holy hands to the Lord. Because it's in the Bible 17 times that we should raise hands in this place, in this place, in this place. Why do you not baptize babies? Because nowhere in the Bible do you find one single reference. It's tradition. It's not Bible to, to baptize babies. Jesus was not baptized as a baby. He was dedicated as a baby. He was baptized as an adult. So we, we dedicate babies. We baptize adults in the model that Jesus set. This is that. Why do you use drums? And we had a woman come in and um, we were using the sanctuary here for the, the baseball youth signups. We do it every year that we loan them the building. And if you play Little League Baseball or your kids do, you have to come here to sign them up. And I'm standing here and this woman comes walking in and she is dressed to the nine. She got her hair and her nails did. She looks like she just came off Nordstrom showroom floor. And she looks at me and she says, is this your church? And I was like, well, I'm the pastor. I don't know if it's my church. It's a people's church. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, are those your drums? I said, no, actually, they're Josh's. But... And she was so appalled that we had, that we had, she just didn't get it, that we had drums in the church. And I, I didn't, it was, just wasn't the time. I didn't have opportunity. I wish I could have opened my Bible and showed her Psalm 150 and said, you mean your church doesn't have drums? You guys are being disobedient because Psalms 150 says that you should have stringed instruments and harps and lyres and, and cymbals and clashing cymbals and loud cymbals. And that the Bible tells you in seven places what kind of worship God prescribes. And he doesn't prohibit any of those things. And it's because this is that which is spoken in the word of God. And so Peter is going to say, guys, they're not drunk. This is what Joel prophesied. This is where you find it in the word of God. Unfortunately, we, we live in a world where so many times something weird's happening. You know, I honestly, I, I don't even know if you guys would believe me if I told you some of the stuff that goes on in churches in the last, as far as I've been a pastor. There, you guys are like, in, in Toronto, it was like the barking like a dog in church when the Holy Spirit would fall in the church and people would bark like a dog or quack like a duck or I just don't think that fits the bill and I don't want no part of it. And there was a thing where it was like gold dust in the teeth and um, Pensacola, Florida had something going on where they were like all these things over the years, these waves of doctrine. And you say to them, why, why do you, why do you do that? And where do you get that from? And you know, the, even the being slain in the spirit is a term where, you know, you pray for somebody and the Holy Spirit slays them and they fall over and you don't find it anywhere in the Bible. 
And you ask the pastors and leaders, why do you do that? And they say, well, because God told me to. Well, I guess if God told you, who am I? You know, I can't argue with that, but um, you should be able to say this is that. Here's, here, let me show you in the Bible where we see that. You know how we form doctrine? And, and that's why we make a big emphasis on Genesis to Revelation. Because if you, if you take the Bible at face value and you take it from Genesis to Revelation and, and you, you take everything into consideration when you make decisions, you're going you're gonna to have a lot harder time getting out in left field with doctrine. You can have much more solid ideas and doctrine, and you can say and you can show it. We don't practice it. If it wasn't introduced in the Old Testament, Jesus talked about it in the Gospels, words in red, and the epistles, um, and the, the apostles um, commented on it and reaffirmed it in the epistles. Those three, if it's not present in all three places, it's not doctrine. And when it's present in all three places, Old Testament, Jesus, and the apostles, now it's solid. You know, what do we believe? You know, so many times we make, we make truth out of experiences. So dangerous. I tell you as Christians, truth doesn't come from your experiences. Okay? The way, the, what God thinks about you and, and how God loves you, it, it's not based on your experience. When the Bible says that, that, that God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son for you, in the great love by which he loved you, that God who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness or have right standing with God? And you're having a bad day? Does it change God's love for you because you're feeling bad? Our feelings don't dictate what's true. Neither do experiences. And if we say, oh, I had this experience, and, and, and I know it's true because I experienced it, I felt it, I, I felt it, and God told me in, in this certain experience, and my friend had the same experience. But if experience is the standard of truth, we're in big trouble. What do we do when those experiences contradict? You know, Muhammad, in, in 610, Muhammad said that an angel by the name of Jibril visited him in a cave near, near somewhere in Saudi Arabia and gave him a revelation. And as a result, Islam was born and the Quran was born. And it was his experience. Well, in 1823, another gentleman by the name of Joseph Smith had a similar vision and he received um, a visitation from an angel Moroni and, and he wrote a book and a religion was born. But what do you do when Muhammad and Joseph Smith's um, visitations from their angels contradict each other? How do you know which one's true? Because they obviously contradict. Islam and, and, and Joseph Smith's vision are completely different. But what, which one is true? And, and, and if experience is a standard of truth, we're in trouble and that's why God gave us the word of God. And, and if you don't believe that the word of God is the standard of truth, I'm sorry for you because all you're left to is where you're born. What does that mean? Well, that means I hope you're born in the right region of the world to where the right truth is found so that you be not deceived if you don't believe that the word of God is the only true standard for truth. Because if you're born in, in Mecca or in Medina, Saudi Arabia, what's the chances you'll grow up LDS? If you're born in Tehran, Iran, what are the chances you'll grow up LDS? If you're born in Tooele, Utah, what are the chances you'll grow up Muslim? And, and, and depending on which one is true, it could only be based on where you're born. And if that's all we're left to is where we're born, we're in trouble. Because if Joseph Smith's vision was true, then I hope I'm born in Tooele. But if Muhammad's vision was true, then I hope I'm born in Saudi Arabia or somewhere where, where Islam is practiced, if that's the only way to find truth. But Peter says, this is that. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give the, um, the, 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 
exact verse from the Old Testament that's coming to pass. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So that's exactly what is being fulfilled. The Holy Spirit was just given. It was poured out on all flesh, exactly as Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2 that this day would come. And and on this day, as you guys know, um, what's different between the New Testament and the Old Testament is when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, several things changed. Okay, dispensations changed. In the Old Testament, you, you related to God based on the law of Moses, and rightfully so. You weren't allowed to eat bacon or unkosher foods. You had to follow the law of Moses. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he fulfilled the law, and he said you no longer have to abide by all of the laws of Moses. You now abide by the law of love and of grace. And the blood of Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, they sacrificed many lambs, hundreds of thousands of lambs in Israel on Passover. And the blood of every one of those lambs covered your sin. But it didn't wash it away. It was still there. It just had its coat of paint on it. The blood of Jesus was different because it didn't just cover your sins. It completely washed them away. It put them as far as the east is from the west. And, and when the blood of Jesus Christ... And then Jesus said something very profound and very um, you know, important to you and I before he died. And he told the disciples something that, you know, it's kind of hard for us to really, really believe and grasp. But he said to the disciples, hey, they were getting, they were starting to like, well, what do you mean you're leaving? And he said, it's better for you if I go. You and I think, man, we would just be so Christian if Jesus was here. And I was like one of the disciples and I could just be around him all the time. And he actually said, it's better for you that he goes. You have better opportunity now to walk with him and be a Christian than than while he was in the flesh. His flesh could only be in one place at one time. But he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and do something radical that I've never done. I'm I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to live inside of you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would make appearances and leave. There were a few few, um, exceptions. Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, Old Testament. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, but that was very rare. And everybody in this room is like Samson and John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and that the Spirit of God lives with us. And he says, um, hey, I got to cut a bunch of stuff, you guys, because we only got 14, so I got to pick and choose what I got to cover here. But really quickly, this term last days, he says in, the la- in these last days, th- this is a biblical term. This actually begins the beginning of the last days started in Pentecost. So for 2,000 years, we've been living in this biblical term, the last days. Peter believed that Jesus would come back in his lifetime, as you and I hopefully believe that Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime. The difference is in these last days, we're living 2,000 years later in these last days, and we've seen in the last 40 years, 20 different prophecies come true fulfilled in our very eyes that, you know, more things. The Bible said that it would be like labor pains on a pregnant woman. And the closer you get to birth, the the more and more intense they become and more painful they become. And that's what we're seeing. And Jesus, Matthew 24, said, when you see wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence, and when they're ramping up and when they're happening more frequently and more intense, and, and those are the signs of the day. So we believe just like the disciples, the apostles, and all men in human history, and Peter prophesied the world would mock you and I for that. Because they're going to say, you, oh, you believe Jesus is coming back in your lifetime? They believed that in the year 500. Yeah, they did. And God wanted them to believe that. 
Because God said if they lived like every day, like Jesus was coming back, it would purify how they lived. Were you guys ever a teenager once? Maybe we got some teenagers in here. If you knew mom and dad weren't coming home for a long time, how'd you act in the house? But if, you, if your mom called you and said, hey, I'm at the store and I'm five minutes away. I got groceries. I'm on my way home. Then how do you act? A little different. And, and when you know and you, when you believe, when you live your life like Jesus could come back at any moment, it purifies how you live. And it's always been God's intent. And the world's going to take that and mock us to say, oh, they've always believed that. That means he's not coming back in the future. Well, I'm sorry, because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future, in the near future. And so we're, we're, we are to live our lives like the Lord comes back. Can God tarry? Can the Lord tarry for another 20, 50, 100 years? I'm sure he can, absolutely. And if he does, then we should do ministry and be ready and serve him. And just like the, the angels told the apostles when Jesus went up into heaven, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? This Jesus who went up, he's coming back. And in the meantime, you got work to do. So in the meantime, you and I got work to do of sharing the gospel. And then it says um, in verse 18, and on my maidservants and on my, ma- my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into de- into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now a different term here, but somewhat similar the day of the Lord. Everybody say the day of the Lord. Okay, you've got to understand what this biblical term means. It's, it's synonymously used with a couple other terms. Um, it basically is talking about the seven-year tribulation period. The day of the Lord is a day of great trouble. It's called the day of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble because the seven-year period of, of God's wrath and tribulation will be a time of trouble for Israel. It's not called the bride's trouble because you and I won't be here. We'll go up in a rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation period. But during this, this time, it's a, it's a great and awesome day of the Lord. And, and during this time, there Joel is prophesying that the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. That's why people try to make a big deal about the blood-red moons and the, the total eclipses and those things because of this prophecy here. And in verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who shall be saved? Whoever. Whoever in this room, whoever wants to call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from hellfire and damnation. Saved from your sins staying with you and standing before a holy God, trying to be righteous based on your own works. The Bible says the best, the best, the best that humans can do to be made righteous before a holy God without the blood of Jesus is like filthy rags. So when you stand before God, you'll be dressed in filthy rags and trying to get into the party. And it's not going to work. But the blood of Jesus will make you white as snow. The blood of Jesus will make you righteous and, and, and give you that. And all, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. This is the first sermon ever in, in, in history um, of, the, of the church, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit, inspired. First sermon in history, Peter gives it, and he starts it by saying, Jesus of Nazareth. That's how he starts his sermon. You know life and, and ministry and church, you guys, it's all about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It, it continues with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. You know, we, we put our sign up, Jesus, to try to illustrate a point that we're, we're about Jesus. The Bible says that if you lift the name of Jesus, 
that I'll, Jesus said, I'll draw them into myself. Every time I get up here to preach, I tell, I tell God, I pray and ask God, God, help me show them Jesus. Help me show you Jesus because it's about Jesus. Do I take anything away from the Father or the Son? Absolutely not. But, but it is in Jesus and about Jesus. And we, 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 we focus and we relate and we love Jesus. And so it's Jesus who saves us. And Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which you did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible, not going to happen, that he should be held by it. So in the Jewish mind, um, they, they, they believed in a Messiah that would come. But the Jewish concept and culturally the people that Peter is speaking to, like the disciples, believed that Messiah would rule and reign. The Bible talks about the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament many times. Now, this far forward with all this information and being 2020, it's easier today for you and I to look at the Old Testament and make a difference between the prophecies in the Old Testament that we're talking about when Jesus came as Messiah, a suffering servant, the lamb who was slain, came as a baby in Bethlehem, and the same prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about something that's yet future. What's yet future? Jesus is going to come back, right? He's coming back. I'm going home. Is Jesus coming back? <laughs> so Jesus is coming back. That's something we don't, it's just, it's, if you can read English or you can read any language and you've got a Bible, it's pretty clear hundreds of times that the same Jesus born in Bethlehem is coming back. That, that don't, you don't, you don't got to be a scholar to, to, to discern that from the Bible. Hundreds of times Jesus is coming back. So Jesus is coming back. Well, the Old Testament has both prophecies. And they had a hard time deciding and deciphering between the two. Because one talks about a Messiah that was a a king of kings and a lord of lords. And so their concept of Messiah is that he would rule and reign, that he would win, that he would overthrow the Roman government, return Israel to to great glory. And and so when, when Peter is preaching about Jesus and the miracles and these things, they're with it. And then as soon as Peter says he died... Their, their, their mentality, their idea of Messiah changes a little bit, but he died. That's ah, over. We, we had hoped. You remember when Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus with the two um, guys and they got their heads down and Jesus disguises himself and he walks up next to him. He's like, hey, guys, what are you talking about? They're like, dude, where have you been? Do you not know the things that are going on here? And he's like, no, what things? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. We had hoped that he was our Messiah. And their hopes were dashed because he had died. Then he revealed himself to them and began to preach, and their day got better. But, but they said, we had hoped. And that's where these men are here. We had hoped. And then where does Peter go after he talks about the death, the very next thing? God has raised. So he goes immediately, verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, goes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that we're going to study through the book of Acts is lots of sermons from the apostles. And I want to tell you, there's three things in every single sermon that's preached in the book of Acts. Number one, the life. Number two, the death. And number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All three points are always mentioned in every sermon. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then what you find is usually followed by a call to repentance. 
Do you want to get your life right? Do you want to know the Lord? Do you want to ask God for forgiveness of your sins? Do you want to have a right standing and a right relationship with God? Repent and call to repentance, a call to get right. But all those things, the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in every sermon. Um, Save one maybe in, in Mars Hill. In verse 24, it said, or verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. When we go to Jerusalem, there's several, um, there's a tomb of David that we'll, we'll see on the tour um, and there's one that's little, maybe a little more authentic. There's the place where you go in the old city and they have a big, like, like, kind of like not behind glass, it's actually behind like a barrier, but it's, a, it's huge too. Big coffin that they say David is there, they buried. But without a doubt, in, in, in Peter's day, David was buried in the city of Jerusalem. They had his, his, his burial site there. And Peter said, I can take you to his graveside. And you can see that King David um, is, is buried and dead. Um, And I'll tell you in a minute what point he's making. In verse 30, he says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of of his own body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. For he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the next verse is is really important, but just in a nutshell, because some of this stuff to most of you is not going to, you're not going to care. But to to this Jewish audience that that Peter is speaking to, again, the concept is they they understand a couple things clearly. That, That the Messiah would come from King David. The King David was a prophet. He prophesied clearly. Second Samuel 7, God said to David, you can't build me a house. You're a man of war, but I'm going to build you a house and, and that the Messiah would come from you. All of Israel understood that the Messiah would literally come from one of the grandchildren, that one of the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of King David would be Messiah. They understood that clearly. And also, but they didn't understand that they didn't see him as divine. Even today in Israel, the idea for Orthodox Jew is that Jesus or that Messiah will just be an ordinary man like King David. He won't be divine. He'll be supernatural in the fact that he's king and he's called by God, but he won't necessarily be divine. And so Peter is speaking to this concept that, that, that David also said that, that he was king and then that, that, I'm sorry, that Jesus would be this. Um, be, be, uh, oh gosh, I'm confusing myself. Try not to confuse you guys. Verse 34 says, for David did not ascend to heaven, but he says to himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So this is the prophecy out of Psalms 110. So in, in the first word there, Lord, do you notice the L O R D? It's all capitals. You know what that means? Tetragrammaton, it's the great I am. Whenever you see the L-O-R-D in all caps, that's the Hebrew word or the Greek word Yahweh. And then the second Lord there is different. And in this case, it says Lord, Lord. And if you don't pick up that little intricacy, you might think it's saying the same thing twice. It's actually two different words. 
one that describes the father when Moses went to um, and saw the burning bush and said to God, who are you? And he said, ego a me, I am the, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the father. And so the father said to my Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, or Savior or Messiah, sit at my right hand. So the father says to Jesus, after he dies and rises again, sit at my right hand, where Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the father, making intercession for you and I. And the father tells him to sit there until I make your enemies your footstool. So the point that Peter is making is basically that Messiah is greater than, that Jesus was greater than David. That was all that to say that. That in the Jewish mind, that David couldn't be um, less than his great, 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 great grandson. That David was the, the patriarch, and the patriarch always had the preeminence over his children or great-grandchildren, right? That the lesser doesn't serve the greater. And, and so he says, if that's the case, then why did David say, the Lord said to my Lord, speaking of Messiah, that, that David called Jesus my Lord, called Messiah my Lord? Thoroughly confused or kind of got it? Okay. All right, let's move on. Clear as mud. So, means Jesus is the Messiah. Don't trip, Jews. Just receive him in a minute. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> Verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, what house? House of Israel. He's talking to a Jewish audience. How many Gentiles got saved on the day of Pentecost? Zero. Okay, the Gentiles didn't get saved until we get to Acts chapter 10. The entire movement, save a few small exceptions, is Jewish. It's all Jewish. All the writers of the New Testament, except for Luke, are Jewish. All the disciples, every one of them, all the 12 disciples are Jewish. It's, it's a Jewish audience. On the day of Pentecost, it's only Jews that get saved. And eventually then the gospel begins to spread to the, the Gentiles and the, and the rest of the world. But in this, in this stage of the early church, I like to point this out when I'm in Israel. You know, and the rabbis are like, you Christians, you know, you flock here by the millions every year. Why do you come here? I say, oh, you guys told us to come here. You know, you guys started this. You know, it was, it was Jews that did all this. We didn't do it. We're just following you guys' lead. And so it says in um, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God wills call. So the men um, received it. They were cut to the heart. And the, that cut to the heart, I like that, right? That's my prayer too for us, that the Holy Spirit would do that work of convicting us and calling us and cutting us to the heart in a good way. You know, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of sin, to call you and draw you, but something that God gets a hold of your heart. Well, 3,000 people. You know this sermon? This is the first sermon in, in, in history of the church. It lasted three minutes long. People like that. Why do you preach for 45? Because I'm not as good as Peter. But three minutes. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some facts from the Old Testament that show that Jesus is who he said he was. And a call to repentance. And a, a pretty big Holy Spirit that's there calling people and drawing people. Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit that does the work. No matter what I say, it's God's call and, and God's Holy Spirit calling on your heart and your life and tugging on you. If that's not happening, no matter what a pastor or preacher says, but, it, but you responding to that call and that conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And these men were cut to the heart and they, and they got saved and they said, what do we do? And Peter then calls them to repentance. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, some people will falsely use this verse here to say that baptism saves us. It's not what's being said here. It's not in the language. You have to be saved first. They were already cut to the heart. They were already convicted. They were already um, to, the, to that point. Paul later is going to say, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. They were all standing around fighting about which baptism was better. Oh, I got baptized by John the Baptist, and he was the coolest. And somebody said, oh, I got baptized by Gaius and Crispus. And they were saying, he's better. than." And, and, and Paul said, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. I wasn't called to baptize. I was called to preach the gospel. Paul would preach the gospel, and the pastors would come later when the people got saved and baptized. Now, if you got saved by water baptism, I'm pretty sure Paul would have been interested in baptizing folks. But, but water, baptism is something we do after we get saved. I, I won't baptize you if you're not already saved. Water baptism is an outward sign of something inwardly that's taking place in your heart. Should you be water baptized as a believer? A hundred percent in obedience. But it's not what saves you. It's, it's, what, it's what proves what's already happened in your heart. If you had to be water baptized to go to heaven, we'd have lots of problems. Right? First one being the thief on the cross. If you had to be water baptized to go to heaven, didn't Jesus say the thief on the cross was going to heaven? Today you'll be with me in paradise. I don't think he had time to get baptized. He was a little hung up. He was kind of stuck, you know. He's like, well, can you sprinkle some water on me? He, he, uh, you guys got the point. <laughs> so repent. And then he says for the baptism. You know, like it's like, it's, this is going to confuse more, but it's like if I say, you, he went to prison for his crimes. I, I'm not saying that he went to prison so he could commit crimes. He, went to, he already committed the crimes, for, so now he's going to prison for the crimes. So to be baptized for the remission of sins, your sins are already forgiven. You already have the forgiveness of sins when you're water baptized. Hey, let's, let's cover one more verse, and then, and then we're going to invite the worship team. Actually, have them come up. It'll probably help me go faster. You guys come on up, and let's close with this. But don't close your Bibles just yet. Hey, verse 42. This is what we call, everybody say Acts 2.42. Okay, Acts 2.42. There's entire ministries that name themselves Acts 2.42. There's a great ministry, uh, Matt Chandler out of Dallas, Texas. Wonderful pastor, wonderful brother in ministry. He has a whole network of churches and outreaches, and they call themselves Acts 2.42. And, and the reason is because in Acts 2.42, we get this, the four pillars of the early church, the four things that God or the Holy Spirit identified as things that they should do and do well and focus on. Okay? So don't focus on the worship team. Focus on me for another minute because uh, you guys are... So, so let's look at them real quick, and then we're going to sing and, and get you guys out of here. It says in verse 42... They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Everybody say one. Okay, fellowship, two. The breaking of bread was, and in prayers, four simple things. What I think fascinating about these four things is that two of them have to do with fellowship. The first one is apostles' doctrine. That means that they were a people of the word. They were a teaching church. They spent time when they gathered together in fellowship to go over doctrine, to teach, to talk about the Bible, to tackle difficult issues. They kept the word of God as a key and a central thing as they gathered. The second one is, is fellowship. And the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Chuck Missler calls his, his ministry koinonia house, fellowship house. And, and, and then the third one is breaking bread. 
Now, we broke bread this morning in communion, but this term here that's three, it's kind of dual faceted. Breaking bread can mean receiving communion as we did together this morning. It can also just mean breaking bread of sharing meals. And the early church did both together. They had these things that were called the agape feasts. They would have potlucks. The whole church would come. Everybody would eat. They would celebrate. And then, and then they would receive in the Lord's Supper at the agape feasts. And it was all done as fellowship so they could be family and friends. Listen, it's God's desire for us to do life together. And, and two of the four things for the early church had to do with fellowship. When we start couple study at our house here in a couple weeks, when we try to get you guys on, in a home fellowship on a, on a midweek, it is about Jesus, for sure. Everything's about Jesus. We're going to keep it about Jesus. But more than that, and just as much in that, our focus, our heart, is fellowship. It's just to hang out. So when you come, we may play games, we may eat, we may, you know, and, and oh, isn't this supposed to be a Bible study? Well, yeah, we're going to do that so that it keeps it all kosher. But, but honestly, our heart really is just to promote fellowship. We're, we're hoping that people become friends, that you meet somebody you haven't met that's in, in a life group that you're in, this stage of life, and somebody you have over when you have your next birthday party or have your next kids bash or something. But it, but it is biblical. It's very, very biblical. God wants us to do life together. And especially when we're such a minority here, we, we need to iron sharpens iron, and we need to be one body and one fellowship. And then the last one was they were a church that prayed. We've got to be a church that prays. Amen? And that, that means that, you know, read your Bible and pray every day. It doesn't mean that, you know, before, you, before we eat, we say, oh, God, thank you for this food. I'm about to bless, you know, or the whatever. I don't even know. I'm glad I don't know them little prayers and joke prayers. People say, over the gums, through the teeth. Lord, here it comes. Something. I don't know. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, being people who pray, being a church that prays, being a church that, that's not afraid if, 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 you know, it's time just to come and, and get together and pray together as a church that, you know, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And it has to be one of our staples. And we pray at home, we pray individually, and we get together, we pray corporately. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord. If you'd like individual prayer, um, some folks will be up front to pray for you. Um, are we open in the prayer room today, Darlene? Okay, if you need um, some, some counseling, you want to talk to somebody, you got something going on in your life, you got any questions, please, we want to meet your needs today. Our prayer for you is that you would not come here with a need that would not be met. So please, you got to help us out a little bit. Don't leave. If you have a need that we can help you with, we'll talk to you, we'll pray for you, we'll encourage you. When you leave these doors, you make a left to the conference room. Um, some folks will be in the conference room just to talk to you, to pray for you to meet your needs, to identify anything that I need to be aware of in your life. And so if you got something going on, it doesn't even have to be heavy. But if you just want to talk to somebody, you want special prayer, you can go to the prayer room. Uh, pastors will be up front uh, if you'd like individual prayer too to pray for you. We love you guys. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Don't leave till this song's over. One song. I know I'm a few minutes over. But real Christians will stay and worship Jesus for one more song. <laughs>